Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Good evening, children of the night. Come on into the cabin. Autumn is creeping into the Shenandoah, and that will make for good nights in, for reading, and even a scary movie or two. Did you happen to catch Don't Breathe? The movie, that is. I know I've been talking about my reading habits quite a bit recently, but I saw this movie, and I think that it was quite a thriller. Did it qualify as a horror? There were some pretty horrific things in the movie that I didn't see coming. It seems like, at least here in the States, that the movie has been successful. But for the people who haven't heard of it, three people break into a veteran's home and get far more than what they expected. I'd recommend this one. As a personal request, for anyone who is familiar with Detroit and has seen the movie, in an early shot in the film, there's a large abandoned building. It's only on screen for a few seconds, but I think that it's the MCS building right off of Michigan. Can anyone give me an amen on that? Email me, tales2terrifygmail.com. We have two stories for you this evening. The first comes to us from B.C. Jackson. B.C. has been published in the Surreal Grotesque and has written non-fiction paranormal articles and co-wrote the paranormal-slash-biography book Haunted No More with Rob Conover. Link to that book will be in the show notes. And now, B.C. Jackson's The Funeral of Natalie Brown. The last of the mourners moved through the cemetery. The dry autumn leaves crunched beneath their feet. The crowd moved slowly, their faces blank and shoulders slumped, like sleepwalkers or fresh-faced zombies moving in the dark. They all converged at the front of a mausoleum, where they bottlenecked through the double doors that were the only entrance and exit to the building. Only when they were inside did the faces begin to come alive, one by one, 
waking as slowly as they had walked and staring at each other in confusion. A small stage had been set up inside the mausoleum facing the double doors. The crowd congregated more toward the doors than the stage. At the center of the stage was an open casket. A dark-haired woman lay inside, and burning at each end of the stage, there was an oversized torch attached high on the wall. These massive torches were the only light in the room, their yellow-orange flames dancing among the shadows in the room. A young woman stood in front of the casket. Her name was Cynthia Brown. Dark, silky hair parted in the middle, framed her young, slender face and her large, dark eyes, which greeted the crowd as they filed in. The red puffiness above her shiny cheekbones made it clear she had spent the better part of the day crying. Thank you all for coming, she began. I know my mother would be honored by your presence. Cynthia's voice was sweet and low, cracking only once at the mention of her mother. The faces staring back at her did not return any sign of sweetness. I have called you all here tonight to celebrate the life of my mother, Natalie Brown. Her voice was firmer, not even wavering at her mother's name. I know all of you have wonderful memories of my mother, special moments you shared with her. I invite you all to share them now. No one spoke. No one moved. They only stared at the sweet-faced girl in front of them. Cynthia recognized that a few of them still looked like they were sleepwalking, so she waved her hand over the crowd. The reaction was instant and unmistakable. As her hand passed over the crowd, the people recoiled with horrified looks on their faces. All grogginess was gone, and the blank-faced stares were replaced by confused expressions. Frightened eyes or angry glares, or some combination of the three. There. Cynthia said with a trace of a sneer on her thin lips. Now we can share. What's going on here? A short old man in the middle of the crowd was the first to speak, demanding an explanation. The last thing I remember, I was reading in bed almost asleep. How did I get here? A quiet murmur spread throughout the crowd. They glanced at each other realizing for the first time that most of them were dressed in their night clothes. Some took in Cynthia for the first time, too, in her tight black dress with a shawl draped over her shoulders. I told you, Dr. Albright, Cynthia said. I called you all here. The murmur grew to a dull roar that echoed noisily off the high ceiling of the small room. Many people turned toward the door, turning their backs on Cynthia, who smiled on the stage. She could make out most of the things being said. The kind of words being thrown at her now were the same that had been thrown at her throughout her entire life. While the names she was called may have been accurate, the tone in which they were uttered is what made her blood boil. Cynthia raised her hand and the few people who were still facing her recoiled again. She flicked her wrist at the door just as the first of the departing reached it. A boom resonated throughout the room, silencing the crowd for just a moment. The man closest to the door reached out slowly and pushed down on the old metal bar. 
It's locked, the man shouted. How do we unlock it? That's impossible, someone else in the crowd shouted. There are no locks on those doors. There must be something on the outside blocking the way. Relax, everyone, Cynthia said calmly. There is nothing barricading the doors. You all know my only partner in life. The only person who would ever help me is lying behind me now. I have locked the doors for just a short time. I will unlock them when we are all done. You will unlock them right now, young lady, Dr. Albright shouted, his wife clinging to his arm. He seemed to lose an inch of courage when Cynthia stepped toward him. Dr. Albright, she said, still calm and smiling. I am sure you will want to stay. You have a fond memory of my mother you'd like to share, don't you? The doctor opened his mouth but stayed silent. Such a good doctor you are, Thomas Albright, Cynthia said, moving back to the center of the stage. But your memory must be failing, kind of like how you failed medical school. The doctor began shaking his head. Oh, yes, Dr. Albright. Mother told me all about how you came to her, in tears, because you were going to be kicked out of medical school for cheating. You begged her to help you, to save you from disgrace. With a simple spell, a few words spoken over a couple of faculty pictures, you were back on your way to becoming Dr. Thomas Albright, weren't you? You cried when you became an M.D. too. Funny you didn't mention my mother in your graduation speech. The doctor still had his mouth open, gaping like a fish out of water. Where are your tears now, doctor? Dr. Albright looked to his wife, who had taken her arm out of his and moved a step back from her husband. She looked at him as if he was a repulsive stranger. Mrs. Albright, Cynthia called in mock reprimand, pointing a finger at the old lady. You shouldn't be so quick to judge. I remember my mother telling me of a young girl coming to her shortly after the good doctor. She had spent a lot of time hanging around the truck stops a mile up the interstate. She said she was tired of the smelly truck drivers and their wadded-up bills that were only slightly dirtier than the things they asked her to do. She wanted a better life. And you got it, didn't you, Mrs. Albright? In less than a month, you had a future doctor between your legs instead of a line of sweaty truck drivers. The Albright stood alone in the crowd, now gawking at each other as the people around them moved away. Cynthia narrowed her gaze on one of the men moving back. Kenny Hagman, she shouted. Aren't you the same boy who had all those zits your freshman year in high school? What happened to those zits? Did you just grow out of them like you tell people? Or are they what you begged my mother to get rid of? You went on to become prom king, most popular in your class, and married a cheerleader. How delightfully cliché. All of those people patting you on the back when they had once called you names behind your back and laughed in your face. My mother didn't laugh at you, did she? She granted your selfish request and wished you well. Yet she didn't even make it onto your coveted Christmas card list, did she? The crowd tried to move farther from the stage, but they were already packed tight. Cynthia paced the stage, 
scanning the crowd for her next target. All hints of sweetness and smiles were gone. Cynthia looked older. Her eyes no longer gleamed with tears, but were wide, deep, and cold, filled with righteous fury. Hold on a minute, Cindy. The calm voice came from the front of the crowd. Father Hitchin stepped forward with confidence. Now I can guarantee I never once visited your mother to ask for any favors. I knew what she claimed to be, and still I let her live in peace. I only encourage people to come to me to show faith in God and not... Father Hitchens couldn't bring himself to say the word. To speak it would be to give it credibility, to acknowledge its existence. Cynthia had no qualms with the word. Witchcraft, Father, she said. You were worried my mother was leading your flock astray. You knew my mother was a woman of God. She had more faith than you or all your sheep put together. She said it was he who gave us our gift. What he gave us was a curse, Father. You all reaped the benefits. Father Hitchens took a deep breath and pointed at Cynthia with his Bible. She flicked her wrist violently and the Bible flew from his hand. She asked you for a gift once, didn't she, Father? Cynthia stepped down from the stage to face Father Hitchens. She asked you to baptize me, her only child, in accordance with her faith, and what did you do? You who preach that all children are welcome in your church, who baptized every child brought to you regardless of denomination, you refused. You refused her the one thing she ever asked of you. Father Hitchens fell to his knees crying. Cynthia stepped back onto the stage, staring down at the sniffling father below. I'm sorry, my child, he said, holding his empty hand to her. Please forgive me. This time it was Cynthia who recoiled, pulling back from Father Hitchens' hand. Save your tears and your pity, Cynthia yelled, spitting the words at him. You only seek forgiveness in the face of the devil. Your faith is like an autumn leaf, beautiful and sturdy until a little wind kicks up, then it falls brittle to the ground. Cynthia backed farther away from the crowd, her face softening as she got closer to her mother's lifeless body. Tears started falling onto her cheeks as she turned to face the casket. No one came to call as she lay dying, Cynthia said. Not one of you had the decency to wish her well even after all she did for you. You are only here now because of a spell I cast, and yet even now you do not mourn her. You only mourn for the loss of your pride and the unveiling of your shame. You will pay your respects now, all of you. Cynthia stepped back from her mother and stood at the head of the casket. She had dried her tears and removed all emotion from her face. Now each one of you will come up here and pay my mother the respect she deserves. When you have all paid what you owe, I will unlock the doors and release you into the night. At first, nobody moved. The light from the torches danced everywhere in the room, throwing light at least occasionally into every nook and cranny. But Cynthia's face stayed covered in shadow. 
No one could see her expression well, and not knowing what face she wore made them all weary of stepping forward. Dr. Albright and his wife stood at the center of the crowd, still clinging to each other, again as they stared at the stage but leaned toward the door, like Kenny Hagman and so many others. It was Father Hitchens who stepped forward first. I am sorry, he pleaded after silently praying over the open casket. He turned to face Cynthia and was met with a stony gaze that held such coldness. Father Hitchens thought it must be the vacuum that sucked all the light from her features. Can you ever forgive me? Don't worry, Father, she said calmly. All will be forgiven soon. Father Hitchens stepped down from the stage, his nerves not at all calmed by Cynthia's words. The rest of the crowd had formed a line that snaked through the room and led to the stage. Father Hitchens moved to a corner in the back of the room and stood alone. The people moved slow and quiet to the stage, none staying for very long when they reached the casket, and only a brave few venturing a glance at Cynthia. Those that did look toward her did not have their effort returned. Cynthia stared over her mother's casket at the flame above. Only after the last of them had stepped off the stage and joined the crowd again did Cynthia move. Again, I thank you all for coming here tonight, she said as she faced the crowd. Tears were running down her cheeks, but her voice was calm and flat. Like the good father said, Regardless of what you said behind my mother's back and whispered to each other as she passed you on the street, you did let her live in peace. She always lived on the edge of town, away from the busy commotion of your hypocritical society, but close enough that you weren't too put out to come and ask her for favors. Then you'd return to your lives and leave her in peace. When she came into town to get the things she needed or stroll through your beautiful park, you let her do so alone, in peace. As she spoke, Cynthia looked from person to person, searching their eyes for some kind of understanding or remorse. Every eye she met turned away. My mother didn't mind, I guess, Cynthia continued, her voice beginning to crack. She didn't complain much and rarely cried, only when I asked her why no one would come to my birthday parties. Wherever invited me to their own did I see her eyes fill with tears, and when I told her the mean things the children at school said about us. Even the children of people she had helped. Even now you resent us. You resent the shame we make you feel. We lived with that shame our whole lives. You have known this shame for less than an hour, and you cannot wait to get out of here. You probably think when you walk out that door your shame will disappear, will be swept away on a cool autumn breeze. It won't. I know that. My mother knew it. Shame stays forever. Cynthia looked to the last face in the crowd, Father Hitchens. He was weeping in the corner away from the rest of the crowd. You know how to get rid of shame, don't you, Father? She asked. He never looked up. You think you damned me to hell by not baptizing me all those years ago. But really, you damned us all. 
Cynthia turned back to the casket that held her mother and closed the lid. The crowd watched, all the while backing away from the grieving daughter, as the doctor and his wife kept quietly pushing on the door handle. The torches by the stage flared bright, bathing the entire room in a grotesque orange light, revealing the looks of disgust on the faces in the crowd. Only Father Hitchens and Cynthia wept. I will release you, Cynthia yelled, her back still to the crowd and her shoulders heaving as she cried. I will release us all from our shame. The torches flared one last time, the fire crawling along the stone ceiling and walls until the whole room was engulfed in its light and heat. The crowd pushed toward the door where Dr. Albright and his wife were pinned by their crushing force. They heard their ribs crack as they gasped for air and tried to push back but could not. They were the first to pay back Natalie Brown. The rest of the crowd started yelling as the temperature rose. They kept pushing for the door because there was nothing else they could do, nowhere else they could go. And when the smell of charred flesh hit their nostrils as Father Hitchens went up silently in flames, they only pushed harder, crawling on one another even as their own bodies started baking in the inferno. No flames touched the rest of the crowd, only their light and unbearable heat. The temperature rose so high that everyone's skin began to glow bright red. They stopped clawing at each other, and started trying to get out of their clothes. A few were successful, but most found that the clothes had already melted to their flesh. By the time their skin started turning dark red and flaking away, most had already paid their dues. Only a few were alive when their eyeballs bulged obscenely and popped, flooding what was left of their faces with a gooey liquid. It was less than a moment later when all debts were paid. After the crowd quit writhing and seething over each other, the flames swept quietly over the stage. Cynthia was leaning over her mother's casket, her arms wrapped around the casket in a final embrace, and she smiled for the last time as her body and everything around her was turned to ash. The flames receded back to their torches on the walls, and their light once again danced around the room. A cool autumn breeze swept through the cemetery toward the mausoleum. A click and a creak echoed among the tombstones as the door swung slowly open. The breeze moved in and whirled around the small room, picked up all the ashes in a dark cloud, and extinguished the fire and the torches before it swept back out again carrying the remains and the shame of the mourners out into the night. That was B.C. Jackson's The Funeral of Natalie Brown, as read by none other than Nicole Doolin. Nicole is a writer and a voice actor, her fiction, poetry, and plays have been published and presented, and her voice has appeared in various mediums. Nicole has performed numerous narrations for a number of popular and award-winning podcasts, such as the No Sleep podcast, Far-Fetched Fables, and Starship Sofa.
She also narrates classic literature in her own podcast, Audio Literature Odyssey. To learn more about Nicole, visit her website at nicoledoolin.com. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Nicole. Our second story for the night comes from Sinoa Carol Brad. Sinoa lives in Southern California with her brother and dancing dog. She writes whatever catches her fancy from horror to fantasy and erotica. Say hello on Twitter at Shinoa Says or keep up with her lunacy at www.sbcfiction.net. And of course, as always, link will be in the show notes. Now, give a listen to Sinoa Carol Brad's Secret of the Seven Symphonies Circus. 
He had to be hauled into the boxcar with a series of pulleys and platforms, like a wounded elephant. Elephant boy, crawl elephant boy, show us your little trunk. He shook his head. It hadn't always been like this. Mandis had made him into this. He had a name once, Alfred Knocker, back in 1910, before he joined the Seventh Symphony's Circus. He'd been sixteen, husky perhaps, but no more than any other beefy youngster. His life at that time had seemed limited. He could go to college and try to find a career in the world, or he could follow his father's footsteps and learn household carpentry. For reasons he no longer remembered, he thought he'd be happier if he could just cut ties with his former life altogether. The Seventh Symphony's Circus had come through the neighboring town of Dreville, and he'd gotten it into his head that he was meant for a life on the road. He'd read Leaves of Grass three times, and thought that maybe he could travel the world, writing poetry and sipping from Lady Luck's cup. He'd approached the circus owner, Dr. Thaddeus Magnus, after a show, as the others were cleaning up and resetting for another performance. His hat in hand, sweat forming on his still hairless lip, he walked up to the ringmaster and cleared his throat. Alfrey remembered the way Magnus' face had changed when he saw him. When Madness thought he was alone, he stared off into the middle distance with a hard look, watching his subordinates scurry around as if they were ants, and he, the boy, perched above the anthill with a bucket of water. When he noticed Alfrey, his broad face broke into a grin that showed every tooth. That close... Alfrey could see the cracks and streaks in his makeup, the ravages of sweat and time. My boy, Madness had said, clapping him on the shoulder. Enjoyed the show, did you? Yes, sir, he muttered. Good, good. Be sure to tell your friends. Madness had paused then and looked Alfrey over, taking in his posture, his rolls, the way he could only meet his eyes for half a second at a time. "'Oh, my,' he said. "'I know that face. Yes, I do. "'Don't have many friends, do you?' "'Alfrey shook his head. "'No, sir.' "'Well, we can't have everything, can we, son?' "'Madness had leaned back and looked at him, "'as if weighing him in his mind. "'What can I do for you?' "'Alfrey had crumpled his hat in his hands, "'unable to release it, "'needing that sensation between his fingers. "'Well, sir, I was hoping I could hire on with you for a spell. "'I know sums and cooking, and I can do hard labor.' "'He remembered the skeptical look Madness had given him. "'I know I don't look it, but I'm a hard worker as you'll ever find. "'How old are you, boy?' Eighteen, sir.' "'Madness had smiled at that and Alfrey didn't know if it was because he could hear his voice quaver on the lie or not. He looked around the big top, and his smile faded as he watched his worker's progress. Oh, I can always use a hard worker, he grumbled. That was back before Madness had acquired his helpers, back when the setting up and striking of the circus still fell to human hands. Alfrey glanced across the boxcar to the covered coffin. It was probably his imagination, 
but he thought he could smell it over here, baking in the stifling heat of the rattling metal box. Madness had not asked him any more questions that first night, which had been a little disappointing, because Alfred had prepared a whole story about how he was an orphan and no one would miss him. Instead, Madness clapped him on the back and told him to report to Greenlee, a man in a slouchy gray hat he'd pointed out across the way. He declared that night a trial run, and said that if Alfred did a good job, they could discuss permanent employment later. That had been the best night of Alfred's life. He'd sweated, broken new calluses on his palms, and felt all the while like he had made it into the ranks of illustrious and magical people. Greenlee hadn't said much, but that didn't matter. Alfrey was happy. Madness had signed him up that night, and when Seven Symphonies Circus left town three days later, Alfrey went with them. He was well-fed and provided a bunk like the others. Alfrey was assigned to help Greenlee with whatever he needed, but he caught Madness watching him a few times, looking at him like a butcher with a hog. Shortly after, he was reassigned to study under Magno, the strongman. Alfrey had to eat the same things Magno ate, a dozen raw eggs for breakfast, steak and rolls, mashed potatoes, and several helpings of everything. Though Magno lifted weights and exercised all day, Alfrey didn't, so he just got fat. When he brought this up to madness, the circus master eyed him and hemmed. You do seem to have gained some weight, he said. Maybe strongman understudy isn't the best fit for you. A few days later, he came to Alfrey in a panic. One of the freaks is sick, he said. Can you fill in for a few hours? Alfrey was appalled. But he hadn't had much in the way of work lately and felt bad about not pulling his weight, so he agreed. In hindsight, he wished he'd asked which freak. Madness and Greenlee took off his shirt and pants, then puffed gray powder on his skin and hooked a long fake nose on his face. Your backstory is the elephant boy, Magnus told him. Abandoned as a child, you were raised in the wilds of Africa by a herd of elephants. Don't speak. Don't get up off your hands and knees. You can trumpet if you want. Let me hear your trumpet. Alfred had tried his best, but Madness winced. No trumpeting. Just tromp around in circles and eat some peanuts. What peanuts? Alfred had asked. The ones folks throw, Greenlee had said. Alfred had turned a pleading look on Madness. Sir? He shook a hand. Pretend you're an elephant. Make it fun. They dragged him to the elephant boy's booth. But no hands. Elephants don't have hands. Alfred was pushed inside. He dropped to his knees, wondering what his mother would say if she could see him there, crawling through the straw like an animal. Alfrey hadn't seen or heard from his mother since he signed up with the circus. He didn't even know if she was still alive. The past ten years had dragged on like thirty, and now Alfrey was tired. Tired of eating, tired of the stairs, the mocking crowd, the disgusted noises women made under their breaths as they passed his stall. He was tired of the secrets, the lies, the deaths. Alfred didn't speak much anymore. People so rarely spoke to him, his tongue just fell out of practice. 
After he reached a certain size, people stopped seeing him as anything more than a breathing collection of rolls and bulges. They seemed to forget he had ears. He'd learned so much over the last decade, so much that he never wanted to know. The first lie. The most harmless one was right there in the name. The Seven Symphonies Circus. They didn't even have one symphony, let alone seven. Alfre made up his mind. He began rocking back and forth, trying to tip himself over. He succeeded, with a sound like a giant pancake being flipped onto a cold griddle. The coffin was only four feet away. He started to crawl. After his first night as the elephant boy, madness raised his pay. He swore that Alfre was the best he'd ever seen, but if he wanted to be truly great he would have to put on some more mass. Alfre occasionally wondered if his life would have turned out differently if he had just said no. But he didn't, and Madness assigned him weekly weight quotas to reach. He was restricted from an unnecessary movement and chased back to bed if anyone caught him up and about. At first, it had seemed relaxing, like a paid vacation. But crawling around on his knees, carrying all that weight, soon became too painful. His knees grew swollen and red until Madness had finally cancelled the elephant boy. They gave Alfre a chair and stopped dusting him in grey powder, and he became the great monstrosity, the world's fattest man. Alfre struggled forward, his flabby stomach dragging along the dirty straw-covered bottom of the boxcar. He was covered in a sheen of sweat from sticky heat and the exertion. His chest hurt already, but he continued crawling forward an inch at a time, dragging himself by the huge, heavy arms, his legs trailing behind, just extra ballast. Less than a yard to the coffin now. For a while, Alfre could get around on a pair of heavy crutches, even though his knees still pained him from his elephant boy days. Madness scolded him for it, telling him that he was doing harm and that he should let his legs rest. Alfred did not listen. He enjoyed whatever slivers of freedom he could find. At one stop, Madness brought a physician in to perform a yearly physical of all the performers and crew. Alfred remembered how his breath had reeked of gin. The doctor had tested his reflexes and weighed him, and then Alfred must have fallen asleep, because the next thing he remembered... He was waking up to find the doctor had gone. The backs of his ankles ached, and he'd grown too fat to see or reach them. Madness told him that the doctor's orders were to stay off his feet for at least two weeks, otherwise he might do permanent damage. He didn't say exactly what the doctor had done. Alfred's weight swelled in those weeks, and his ankles itched and ached, but he couldn't scratch them. When the two weeks were up, Alfred tried to walk on his own and immediately fell over. Madness came when he called for help and shook his head sadly. You shouldn't have pushed yourself. Now look what you've done. That had been the last time Alfred moved of his own volition, until today. Deep down a part of him had dreamed that if he'd just rested his legs long enough, they'd recover and he'd be able to walk away from the Seven Symphony Circus once and for all. His hand landed on the tarpaulin and dragged it away, 
revealing a coffin of dark, polished wood, carved and inscribed in a language he couldn't read. It hadn't been his imagination. Now that he was next to it, Alfrey could definitely smell the corruption of the thing inside. He slapped the flabby wing of an arm over the casket's lid and began the laborious crawl to the boxcar door. Alfrey knew all about Madness's helpers, one of the circus's many ugly secrets. He knew how they went out into the town whenever the circus stopped and preyed upon those who didn't see the show. Madness told them not to harm patrons, but the rest were fair game. Such a little price, a circus ticket. Such a little price to save your life. Alfrey had seen them come stalking back from the fairground after a kill, flushed with life, filled with color, almost alive again. They paid him no mind, but he heard them speak of the fortune teller and of the angel. Alfrey hadn't seen the angel. He kept to himself more than anyone, and his shows were all in the big top where Alfrey was not allowed but he'd seen the patrons exit the angel's show with tears on their cheeks, smiling and laughing as if they were drunk. Alfrey wished he could see the angel perform. He'd like that almost as much as being able to walk again. The casket was heavier than he'd expected, and Alfrey's progress slowed even more as he oozed across the boxcar floor. His birthday was almost upon him once more. The way his heart fought in his chest, and as hard as it was to breathe, he didn't think he had many birthdays left. For a while, Madness used to bring him hired girls on his birthday, as a reward for a year's work well done, if sitting in a chair and stuffing his face while strangers sneered could be considered work. He hadn't brought Alfrey a girl in three years now, not since he'd accidentally smothered one. Alfrey wondered if her family ever learned the truth of what happened to her. Or, if one day the girl's mother had woken up with a hole in her life, as his mother had. Most likely, no one learned of her demise. Madness's helpers probably thought of that. There was a popular snack booth by Serene's tent, and he could always smell it from his chair, the aromas of roasting meat and spices forever teasing his nose. The booth's painted sign read, Exotic Morsels from the Mysterious East and he often saw patrons wander by with their skewers of spiced brown meat. Camel, the signs claimed, but Alfred had never seen a live camel near the circus, let alone a clean and butchered one. When patrons asked how the meat could be so fresh, they were told it was owed to a secret preservation technique known only in the Orient and taught to only a dozen chefs a decade. Alfred suspected it was easier to suggest townspeople disappeared because they joined the circus. Tracks seemed to cover themselves when there was no body left behind. Alfrey reached the door and collapsed, his sweaty face pressed to the boxcar's filthy floor, his breath wheezing. He lay there for nearly fifteen minutes trying to regain his strength. His heart felt like it might burst. At last, he pulled himself up, using the casket as support, and flipped the latch to the door, collapsing back like a cresting wave of fat. Despite everything, Alfred did understand his place in the circus. He wasn't so hopelessly naive. Dr. Madness had explained to him long ago that people flocked to the circus for two reasons and two reasons only. The light, 
They came to see something amazing, something unbelievable, awe-worthy, something they'd never be able to do, something that filled them with wonder and hope and made them feel alive. That was Serene's job. That was the angel's domain. And there was the dark, the ugly, base side, where Alfre and the other misfortunes resided. They provided something hideous for the patrons to gawk at, something disfigured, deformed, and wrong. The patrons wanted to feel disgust at the sight of them, to feel superior, and for their little lives to look better by comparison. That was the service Alfred provided, faithfully and without complaint for years. But no longer. He pried the boxcar door open an inch. The wind whistled past, blowing cool air in his face. He smiled. At least he could take comfort in the knowledge that his suffering was not for nothing. When he reached heaven, St. Peter would see how he had earned his place in paradise, where he could watch the angels show for free every night. He pried the door open another few inches, then a foot, then another. At least he could take comfort in the knowledge that his soul would persist, unlike those of madness's poor damned helpers. The wind roared and sucked at him, the dry fields passing by in a yellow blur. Alfred slapped one huge arm on the casket top, making a sound like half a butcher's shop dropping to the floor. Something moved inside the coffin. Something scratched in panic against the wood. Alfred took a deep, labored breath, then shoved the coffin out. It disappeared into the air, whipping out of sight, and Alfred heard the shattering crack of wood exploding into splinters on impact and a horrible inhuman screech as Magnus's helpers suddenly faced the strong summer sunshine. Madness would hear it. Madness would know. Alfred dragged himself to the edge of the door, pushing it all the way open. Train brakes squealed. He gripped the floor edge, then heaved himself out. The train had begun slowing, but not by much. He tumbled into the weedy grounds, feeling gravel bite into his flesh, chewing him apart. He rolled down the embankment, the world going blurry, and thought he might be sick. But he'd done it. He was free. Alfre finally came to rest on a little culvert, where the dirty water trickled by his swollen feet, and patches of wild mustard and black-eyed Susans bloomed. He ached all over from his tumble, and he didn't have the strength to haul himself another inch. The train brakes ceased their squealing at last. They'd stopped. Alfred closed his eyes and sighed. The breeze was nice. The air was warm, but not too hot, not too suffocating like it had been in the boxcar. He heard shouting, swearing, the tramp of feet. Madness was coming. He knew madness would kill him for this. But for now, Alfre was happy. He may not have walked away, but he'd managed to quit the Seven Symphonies Circus after all. That was Sinoa Carol Brad's Secrets of the Seven Symphonies Circus, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the avatar for a three-kilometer sentient starship that is parked, probably uncomfortably, close to the third planet. Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. 
he is very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology to that he can communicate in this limited fashion. He is a frequent narrator for two podcasts, Far-Fetched Fables and, naturally, Tales to Terrify, both part of the Districts of Wonders network. Thank you, Seth. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.